My name's John, John Woolhouse. Well, I've been working with wood since I was 13 years old. I was asked to make a box, and the rest is history, so they say. The first step we do is we take a five-foot square piece of plywood, we put it on a 10-foot-6 CNC rail tip, which then cuts all the components, two ends, two sides, a base and a top. We utilise the CNCs, which enable those to be exact time after time. Those components are then carried to the print shop, my wife screen prints. And my son digitally prints the individual numbers and the artwork. I know you're for an Stick All the components are brought to the main factory and the guys assemble that by hand with pneumatic nail guns and adhesive to give the basic plywood box. The box is then clad top and bottom with timber. The corner post stops the box from being smashed apart from inside. My favourite part is the actual design and the fact that the boxes are all exactly the same, which means that you can take a lid off any box and put it on any other box, which is different to how we normally make boxes. This week's Monday with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Well, we are back. We got a, a couple of revolver things. Oh, we got uh, a couple of other things which are new or relatively new or, well, in the news. We're sliding in with a hodgepodge of all sorts of stuff. We'll fill it out. And we will also have some revolver stuff as well to finish out our series here. Right. Because it's just not finished. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Four weeks is not enough. Four hours is not enough. Not for that album. <laughs> <laughs> First off, we did have a couple of notable passings this week. Uh, Ed Rudy passed. I was the only American reporter to travel on the first complete American tour with the Beatles. I broadcast news coverage with the Beatles for hundreds of radio and television stations around the country and produced a documentary recording of interviews with the Beatles that provided an amazing insight into these phenomenal Liverpudlian lads. Way back when, when I was first starting to collect... Beatle albums that it was the first time I ran across his name but he also had like his own series this is Ed Rudy reporting for Radio Pulse Beat News 
they looked like bootlegs. They had like white covers and they were plastered with, you know, Ed Rudy and the Great American Tour. Right. He was actually assigned to the Beatles in America fairly early on. So he was there throughout the entirety of their first run, and he actually did 30-second minute spots for radio stations across the country. And he put those together and created this LP. He clearly had his little tape recorder going and recorded the craziness at its white-hot level. It's interesting in that I found a lot of his questions to be kind of pedestrian we spoke with beetle road manager malcolm evans have you been down to the peppermint lounge yet i haven't been down or the boys have been yeah i know, I know that they were there and i know that they met a couple of young ladies there one of the fellows was telling me i uh, they haven't had actually had any uh chance to develop any real friendships uh with gals since they've been in new york or since they've been in america really have they oh no life's been a bit too hectic since they've been here with press conferences photograph sessions you know and we're not rehearsing for shows and traveling you know we don't get much time for a month the washington dc coliseum booked the beatles for a one-night stand in the indoor stadium he never improved he he was always out there to make a buck off the beatles <laughs> and <laughs> right. because his Bosses told him to go go follow this bunch of long hairs. What are you going to do with the bubble bursts? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, I mean, the tackiest thing he did was uh, so he put out like four or five LPs. Like the first one was actually pretty big; it got to number twenty on the album charts, and each subsequent one fell off a little bit more. And then by the end, he put out an album with uh, a band he called the Liverpool Lads. I don't know if they're the same Liverpool Lads that are on the uh, the knockoff Beatles album or what, but he had them record every song that the Beatles did in concert, and then he put the real crowd noise over it. <laughs> so there, there's a simulated live Beatles LP out there with Ed Rudy and some real interviews both before and after. But a different band. He did get John Lennon to call him the fifth Beatle before Murray the K. This is John Lennon saying this is the top complete behind-the-scenes coverage of the Beatles in America by the fifth Beatle, Ed Rudy. This is one of the original four Beatles, John Lennon, saying thank you for the wonderful reception we've received in the United States and stay tuned for Ed Rudy's reports and as we tour the States. Okay, Ed. Huh. There's this story about how, you know, they came over here and, and really fell to the wiles of... DJs and they did things that promoted things, did on the air interviews that Brian Epstein kind of came back and went, cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of how 
Louise Harrison managed to make herself a radio personality. <laughs> right. Everybody was trying to get in on it, so they wised up pretty fast. He's a little bit more in a footnote. He was kind of Larry Kane before Larry Kane, but <laughs> less interested in actually asking them intelligent questions, as you said. Right. He was there. He was 93. He lived a good long life. The second person who we lost was uh, Ken Mansfield. Uh, I was fortunate enough to meet him at the Monmouth White Album Conference a couple years back. Cool. He was a nice guy. Yeah, he was totally involved in setting Apple up. Uh, yeah, he was really the president of Apple Records America, I believe. Right. More or less the liaison between Capital and Apple. And he was involved in a, a lot of those early meetings. I mean, you'll see him in tons of photographs as they were putting it together. He was on the rooftop. There's a the priceless photo of them just after they got into Three Savile Row, and there's no furniture. Yes, right. They're all sitting on the floor. Yeah, Peter Asher over in the corner looking just like Austin Powers. <laughs> oh, behave. Ken Mansfield has written a couple books, although they're mostly the same content. Uh, one called The White Book, one called The Beatles, The Bible, and Bodega Bay, which is actually kind of interesting because it, right. it talks more about himself as much as it does his relationship with the Beatles. Uh, and then... Just a couple of years ago, just after the White Album Super Deluxe came out, uh, he put out a book about the rooftop. Yeah, I don't think he survived Alan Klein. I don't believe so. He stayed in the music business. He went on to a number of other things, and he was actually pretty successful after his time with the Beatles. Right. Now, I wasn't implying that, that that was the end of his life, but I don't think he survived that massive cutting that Alan Klein did at Apple. Why would you need an American liaison when you have Alan Klein? They set up um, a record company, a film company, an invention company, which was Madhouse. That thing was crazy. Then the booking agency and the publishing. So they had like five divisions. And so I was the head of the record division in America. Chris O'Dell was the one who actually told us about that on her Facebook group. She stayed close with uh, Ken Mansfield. And, well, well, we'll talk about Chris O'Dell sometime as well. An interesting figure. Uh, a, a lot more notable than Terry Garr in the Beatles story. <laughs> right. Second, well, we got a new video from Ringo. Yes, we did. Uh, a little bit more in-depth than he's done. A little bit more upbeat, a little bit more in-depth. As I have mentioned to you on a number of occasions, Ringo's gotten a little bit lazy in his videos the last couple of years. He has more or less just gone into a studio and mimed to the song and let yeah. the studio take care of the heavy lifting as far as the video piece. I think at this point, what is he, 82? This is just my opinion, but I think it's like, I put out my music, you can buy it or not. It doesn't really matter about the videos. It's just kind of like a flare. Hey, look, I've put out a new record, but I don't think he's really involved in it much. It, probably not. So you're just running through it real briefly. It starts out and it comes up with an MPAA logo. R, Ringo Starr, everyone and everything. I wonder if the MPAA can sue over that because, well, they do own the trademark on their logo and on that the design of the uh, ratings box. And he uses a lot of Beatle imagery. He's had a lot less of a tendency to do um, the Beatles thing than even Paul. I mean, Paul will throw out a Beatles thing whenever he wants to promote whatever he's doing. Ringo, <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. A lot of this reminds me of the cartoon Ringo. You know, he's sort of toddling around <laughs> in a very similar manner. I thought it was really clever at one point when he does a drum fill and he's walking on the beach and he 
does a series of steps that fit the fill that he's playing. And then it becomes four of him, and it's kind of the Abbey Road cover. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. They use the uh, Richard Avedon photos. Um, Best known to us for the most part for being on the cover of Love Songs. Right, exactly. Uh, although on Love Songs, poor Ringo got thrown way in the back. You got a big John, you got a big Paul, you got a medium-sized George, and you got little Ringo way in the back. They put the photos in the same level as how much did you contribute to the album? <laughs> and then beyond that, you get Sunflowers, which are big in John and George's iconography. We get a piece version of the Yellow Submarine Flying Glove. And at one point, the Avedon photo turns into yellow submarine cartoonized version of the Avedon. Then there's also a, a little bit where there's a set which has Goodnight Vienna, it has Stop and Smell the Roses, and it has an intentionally sort of beat-up looking copy of EP3, which is kind of cute. And then there's a little television in there, and it's playing Caveman. <laughs> yeah, here's his whole career. Although it, it also fits in with the lyric in there. I've heard more than one person say, Jesus is the first time I've heard a streaming service referenced in a song. There's got to be like rap songs and stuff to talk about Netflix. <laughs> Ringo says that it looks like a movie scene he saw on HBO. But then we pull back and we see that the set is actually a, a doll's house sized. A doll's house. That's another reference. Well, it could be. Actually, the reference that I had was, you know, this looks kind of like the Pussycats cover. Yeah, I can see that. With John and Harry, the regular size heads on the little dolls. It's like... Right. I don't think Ringo was actually thinking of it, but it kind of was like that. I know he was there at those sessions, but he probably doesn't remember much. Well, he played on a couple songs on that album. Right. But yes, he was living in the beach house with those people. <laughs> Party people. And Keith Moon. I'm pretty sure he doesn't remember much of it. We see this cat then wandering around the set, and it's a giant cat. Well, it's not a giant cat. It's a regular-sized cat, and it's a doll's house set. The cat gets dumped into the set. We see them cutting back and forth between Ringo on an actual beach playing the drums with a little miniature setup inside this doll's house. <laughs> they actually spent some time, and they spent a little bit of effort and it's not digital. It looks entirely real. Except for the giant cat. But that's not digital either. That's green screen. Right. Green screen and forced perspective. Old school movie tricks. You know, it's not like they actually did it life size and put in a giant cat. That's like, there's a real cat there. You had mentioned the song. Well, I mean, I'd kind of mentioned it before as well that, you know, Ringo should sing songs that are about something else other than just peace and love. I mean, it's a good sentiment. We know that there's a need for it in the world today. But, you know, Ringo, people are getting a little tired of it, I think. You can do all those songs, but I think that you need to do other stuff as well in order to be what you are, which is an entertainer. I mean, he's not really a preacher. He's not doing what George did. Or John, really. John would go to love is the answer and peace, 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 but that wasn't the only thing he talked about. Right. He'd also do Crippled Inside, and there's other things that John did that varied it up. Whereas Ringo, as you say, he's 82. You're not going to change his mind. You know, all we can do is not buy it. I'm happy enough to buy it and support him, so Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'm not happy with him showing off his feet again. At the very end of the video, he goes into his current mode. Although it's cartoon feet, it's not his actual feet. With the sandals and with the peace and love, it's like, right. Ringo, we, we really don't need to see that. Vary up the lyrics of your songs and stop with the feet thing. 
<laughs> we get the peace and love feat. We get a sunrise who is Linda Perry, who is the woman who actually wrote the song. And I don't know if that's clever or if that's just a little bit too self-referential. Right. I didn't even know who it was. At least I didn't go, oh, who's Linda Perry? (laughs) Katie's sister? (laughs) Well, then it ends with the I love Lucy Hart and it's I love you. Okay. I don't mind that so much. It's, It's a little bit too Barney. (laughs) Basically, what has happened is that, for me, he's put out something that just, it doesn't speak to me. If it was meant to be aimed at me, it missed. It's cute. It's clever. I like it a little more than you do. Although, I think the video helps the song, where you kind of like the song a little bit more when it was just the song. Yeah, perhaps. When we reviewed it back when EP3 came out. Well, there you go. That's new. We want to talk a little bit about Paul McCartney and his relationship with singles through the years. Yeah, it's been an odd relationship. We can pretty definitively say that the Beatles as a band were both an albums band and a singles band. They tended to keep them a little bit separate. Do you think? When they started, there wasn't such thing as an album band. They invented the model. Yes. And so it changed. But, you know, they also said their biggest dream was just to have that little bit of plastic, just to have a record. When we made our first record on Parlophone towards the end of 1962, we hoped everybody would like what we'd already been our type of music for several years already. But we had no idea of all the gear things in store for us. It all happened, really, when Please Please Me became a number one hit, and after that, well, Corda Blime is heather no. And they were talking about singles, not about albums, and so that's what they wanted. So in their heads, and I think George Martin encouraged the idea of the singles being outstanding songs, songs that weren't as outstanding were considered album songs. And so, you know, they were kind of a singles band for a lot of their career. But, I mean, as the story goes, they were overjoyed. Now, it may have been for monetary purposes, but they were overjoyed when George Martin came to them and said, okay, we're going to extend the contract. We're going to make an album. Sure. Why wouldn't you be? Yeah, I'd be overjoyed. But I don't think that's what they were thinking going in. They were just happy to make a, a record, a single. I don't disagree with that, but you also hear them talking that when they got to make an album, they wanted to make sure that every song on the album was good. They'd grown up enough listening to these albums where there's the hit song, there's maybe the B-side, there's maybe one or two other songs, and everything else is just filler. Right. And they absolutely didn't want to go that route. They were a a big B-sides band as well a lot of times they would play the b-sides of singles they like those records i'm just saying that was how they kind of started off and they created the idea of the album band where you would put out albums and the beatles were relatively unique in that you know they maintained a policy of having singles separate from their albums there weren't a whole lot of people who did that yeah, although that did change at least a little bit around the time of Revolver. I mean, you know, you had Yellow and Rigby and Yellow Submarine pulled from the album, but then you also had Rain and Paperback Rider, which had just come out roughly contemporaneously. Right, but I don't think that that was actually a change in policy necessarily. I don't know. I wasn't in the room when it happened, but it could have been that the reaction to Eleanor Rigby kind of demanded that there be a single. They didn't plan on it being a single. It became a single. They continued the policy on the next album. Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane didn't make it on Sgt. Pepper. 
and there were in fact no singles off of Sgt. Pepper. They very well could have pulled either Lucy or Sgt. Pepper with a little help on the A side, and Day in the Life on the B side would have been a killer single. Day in the Life charted in places in the States as an album track. Right. Nothing off of Magical Mystery Tour. It was an EP. And so you had single singles. Hello, Goodbye, and... Lady Madonna, Inner Light was not on an album. Hey Jude was not on an album. And then you get to Abbey Road, where something was on the album. Something had come together, were both on the album. Right. Then Let It Be both kind of does and doesn't count. <laughs> right. You look at what they're doing and get back, they're all excited about, let's put this out. This is going to be our next single. And so. they worked on it. Get Back was released in April... And the sessions kind of were being finished up February. I think they mixed in March. But when the album eventually came out, Don't Let Me Down was not on Get Back. And it should have been, you know. That then takes us through to the beginning of McCartney's solo career. Neither George nor John had really been putting out solo records that demanded a single before the official breakup. Was there a single off the Wonderwall music album? No. At one point, they were going to release a song called In the First Place that George had written. Yeah, the Remo 4. It's actually a very Beatlesque song. Yeah. Losing my So, no, there was no single from that. I don't know about the soundtrack from The Family Way. Seems like something did get released. To me, you know, if you are blessed with the ability to sort of write music, um, film scores were kind of an interesting um, diversion. And George Martin being able to write and being able to orchestrate and being pretty good at that. Um, I think got an offer through the Bolting brothers to, for him and me to do some film music for The Family Way. So I had a look at the film, I thought it was a great film, I still do, it's very powerful, emotional, soppy, but good film, I think, for its time. We actually even got an Ivan Novello Award for the best film song that year for a thing called Love in the Open Air. I don't remember if there was a single of it or not. Even if there was, that was not intended as a McCartney single. It was, I think, released by the George Martin Orchestra anyway. As far as the public was concerned, Paul wrote it, but had nothing to do with, you know. Although it's funny, you know, we, we note that there are several tracks from the Liverpool Oratorio in this 80-song box. So Paul's hand selection of singles, he wants that represented. Right. But then we get into, since we're talking about the singles, 
the big mystery for me, which is why Maybe I'm Amazed was not released as a single. That's a heck of a question. I know. (laughs) It's one of its greatest songs. It radio-friendly. It was a hit six years later by Wings, although it's the Wings version is not anywhere near as good as the solo version. And it was that a Klein decision? I can't imagine that each of the four of them had the right to put out whatever they wanted to on Apple. Clearly, John's selections for Apple, both singles and LPs, show that. Klein's going to allow David Peel. We're talking about different times, though, because that period of time from, let's say, January 69 through half of 71, things weren't decided well at all. John had a couple of singles, Cold Turkey and Instant Karma. Paul thought the idea that his album would have Abco on it, so he clearly didn't have any control over that. You know, I just can't imagine why he wouldn't do that. And it wasn't released as a single anywhere. Uh, you know, you go through the box and Paul has put out a number of songs which weren't US or UK A or B sides because they were singles in France or Germany or Zimbabwe. <laughs> right. Which I don't think is a bad idea. And instantly, the Beatles singles box featured picture sleeves from other countries. Do you think that's a cool idea? I mean, particularly given the the main reason anyone's going to buy that box and the McCartney box, for the most part, you know, truth be told, is as a collector's item. Yeah. You know, he didn't have cover sleeves in the United States for everything. I mean, the singles I bought for Venus and Mars were just in a sleeve. There was no picture with them. They were all on the Apple label through Band on the Run. Is that right? Well, uh, Venus and Mars had the juggling globes, the red and the white billiard balls, printed on the label on the record, not the sleeve itself. Yes. It was kind of a generic single sleeve. I, you know, I guess green or black for Apple. And you got that with, you know, all the singles before then. You know, Helen Wheels was on Apple, even though the album had a different label with the three photos. But Helen Wheels, Live and Let Die, was on an Apple. Although, High, High, High was on a red label. That kind of brings us back around to the question we ask. Why was Maybe I'm Amazed not a single? Well, maybe Paul was thinking, I don't want to be a singles artist anymore. I can't imagine that being the reason. You may not want to be, but... That's still the property by which artists were being measured at the time was the singles billboard chart. Yeah, radio play was everything. That's how you heard songs. He certainly had no problem putting out Another Day or uh, Uncle Albert. Which is available in mono for the first time in the singles box. There you go. That's a good record. He started his singles career with Another Day and Oh Woman, Oh Why, which was specifically a song written for a single. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it was all recorded during the Ram Sessions. It was kind of among the first things in the Ram Sessions. Right. You have one of the guitarists, either Hugh McCracken or Dave Spinoza, is on it. Yeah. He After another day, we got a couple of singles off of Ram. Uh, Uncle Albert, which was a big single. Yes, it was. 
number one. And then a couple other tracks off a of ramp, backseat of my car. Eat at home. How did Eat at home become a single? I was trying to come up with something pithy, but I don't know. It's kind of a 50s thing that's. It's a song about oral sex. says you <laughs> read the lyrics <laughs> then you get some of the singles that paul really likes uh, give ireland back to the irish which probably shouldn't have been a single it did get banned it had the dreadful fate of having the instrumental version on the b-side i guess it was done quickly because of the bloody sunday incident in ireland and so he felt compelled to was Luck of the Irish first, or were they pretty much contemporaneous? Well, I think Luck of the Irish is first, and Bloody Sunday, for that matter. Liverpool is considered an Irish city, kind of, and certainly uh, Paul feels close to the Irish people. I think his mother was Irish, so you know, I'm not surprised he felt a way in. It's not the best song. It doesn't sound like a hit single. It sounds like yeah. Paul putting out a message. Yes, with his garage band. And as we know, message songs are not Paul's strongest suit. There's very, very many things he can do, but writing a song with the message burnt into it is not really one of them. I would say it depends on what the message is. I mean, he's really good at life homilies, and you know that is a message song. I think about the best he's ever done is Long Other Coat. That's a rocking song, and it has a message. But, you know, most of the time you get to something like Freedom, which is, ugh. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> yeah, you went to that one. <laughs> What's the worst thing he ever did? But it's a message song. Well, yeah. But, again, just like Give It Ireland Back to the Irish, it was written in the passion of the day. Heat of the moment, and it was something written for... New York City when New York City was suffering. I, I get yes. that, but it doesn't excuse the uh, dreadful nature of the song. Yeah. You can just imagine, hey, I heard that Paul was writing a song for this show. That's great, man. And then they hear it. You know, there's that clip in the behind-the-scenes stuff for the concert for New York. He plays it for Eric Clapton in rehearsal, and, and Eric just sort of sits there looking dumbfounded. Are you sure you want to uh, premiere that tonight, Paul? Right. Huh, I'm playing Layla. <laughs> Wings was pretty much known as a singles band. I would say Wings was probably more of a singles band than an album band. Yeah. They had just a string of really successful singles. Second, probably only to the Beatles. In the 70s, Wings was up there with Elton and with Queen and with whoever else was on the top of the charts. I wouldn't say they were second of the Beatles, but they certainly had a bunch of singles. I mean, this was the era of the Eagles, and I mean, there were other people who were having a bunch of hits. And it's true, they had some big songs for about two years. You had Helen Wheels, which was not on the album and forced its way onto the album, at least in the U.S. Yeah, well, that kind of shows that Paul understood the business you know helen wheels needed to be on that album to help it sell it wasn't actually paul's idea it was the capital guy's idea it's like uh, we put this song on the album and it's going to go to number one 
But you left out some really good singles. Hi, hi, hi was really good. As a fan, the songs I was hearing at the time, there were some really good things in there. Not Mary Had a Little Lamb. Which had five separate videos. <laughs> yeah, it was around that time I saw the James Paul McCartney's thing as well, and that that was hard to watch. Little Woman Love was kind of a an old Beatle riff that he had that he turned into a cool little song. Hi, 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 hi was a really good rocker. Sea Moon wasn't bad. Kind of reggae. It's a little bit, to use your word, a little bit twee, but I, it actually fits the song. And anytime you have somebody giggling in the song. <laughs> you know. I like that he found an opposite for L7. <laughs> right. Let's not be L7. Going back to Wooly Bully, L7 was square. And well, so if that's square, what's a circle? But that to me is kind of the twee part of it. It's like, okay, that's cute. I like the horn arrangement. It was weird. It was a piano based song, but the horns were cool when they came in. It was a good listen. And although I wasn't a big fan of My Love, I thought The Mess was a cool song. And they never recorded a proper version of it. No, that's sad. As the years go by, we get to. What at the time was the biggest single of all time that had managed to outsell anything the Beatles ever done. Mull of Kintyre. For sure. Except in the States where, well, we decided to flip the sides and make girls school the A-side. I understand why Mull of Kintyre might not have worked real well in America, but to go with girls school as the A-side, it's rocking, but it's a joke. I ended up liking Mull of Kintyre, but you can understand what, the record company going, what was going on at the time? It's 1977. You're in the midst of early punk and disco and the emerging new wave. Acoustic song with bagpipes is a risk. Then find something else to put on the A-side. A song with lyrics ripped from the uh, adult movie pages of the uh, independent paper in New York City. It was the B-side in Britain too, right? It was the B-side in Britain. They just flipped it. I forget. It might have been designated as a double A side, but the side they put the money behind and promoted was girls' school. Right. And that was right before London Town, wasn't it? London Town bars with a little luck. That would then be followed by uh, the non-album single Goodnight Tonight, which while it was certainly Paul's giving disco a foot in the door, it was very accessible to his rock fans as well. We go through and we finish the Wings era off with Arrow Through Me. The Rockester theme was a single, but didn't chart anywhere. And it wasn't released in the U.S. or the U.K., but it was an interesting choice, I guess, just because you had so many names on it. Yeah, that was part of it. Looking over this list, I realized that the last McCartney single I bought was Goodnight Tonight. After that, I just bought albums. Although I think that someone gave me a copy of We All Stand Together. <laughs> then my favorite, the McCartney song with a Wings video, Wonderful Christmas Time, backed by Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reggae. I don't know when's the last time you spun that side of the disc. Uh, Never? Yeah. I'm trying to think because I didn't buy Wonderful Christmas Time, so I'm not sure whether I've ever spun the other side. I know that's probably blasphemy in some circles, but yeah, I don't know that I've heard it. It's on YouTube.
Okay. Do you like Wonderful Christmas Time? Well, no. Um, <laughs> however, I have heard it done in a different arrangement, and it wasn't bad. The dueling Casios thing, huh? <laughs> yeah. That's really what turns a lot of people off about Wonderful Christmas Time. I kind of like it. There's a really neat little tune going on once you get past the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. You know, once, once you get past that, and maybe don't listen so much for the sleigh bells, but there's a nice little tune underneath there. It's an abstract tune. It's not so much a McCartney tune, but it's still good. Well, yeah, I will admit to the world that I didn't go that deep into Wonderful Christmas Time because I was like, that's not what I'm listening to these days. So So then right about that time, McCartney starts in on what is the new fad. Really, it started with Good Night Tonight was the 12-inch single. Was that a bane to the record buyer or was that just kind of something we had to go through because... Dance mixes and discos were all the rage at the time. That's how I took it at the time. It was just the fad. But it lasted a decade. All the way through to Spies Like Us. And even off the ground, we had four or five or six different mixes of the various singles that came out at the time. Right. There's one remix, which is absolutely great. It's the My Friends Call Me Tom remix. (laughs) You know, they just run out of names for these remixes. Right. Uh, It also drives collectors mad. Actually, that's a box I'd like to see him put out. I'd like to see him collect all of his 12-inch singles and put that out as a box. That I'd buy. Huh. I mean, most of those remixes have come out in the archive editions, but not all of them. From your lips to the record company's ear. And it'd also be a decent size. You know, you're not talking about 80 singles. Right. And you get 10, 12, 15 minutes on each side, so it's not like you're getting up every three minutes to change the single. We'll look for it. There you go. There's my suggestion for the next McCartney box. So the 80s would have to be called the era of the duet singles, Ebony and Ivory and Say, 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 and The Girl is Mine. The doggone girl is mine. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's some things in that I liked. We kind of missed coming up, which I really liked. It was quirky and... The live version or the studio version? I like the studio version. And the live version was okay, but... I like the studio version. I guess I was listening to stuff like Godly and Cream and some weird stuff. So it would have come out right around that time. Trio with Da Da Da. Da Da Da. Da Da Da. And craft work. Those were kind of popular things. And Paul doing something like that was kind of really cool. Well, and so. to a certain extent, you know, we've been talking about the experimentation on Revolver. He'd shed himself of wings and not only the whole McCarty 2 album, which, well, maybe that's experimentation gone a little bit too far, but the single is in the mode of what he might have done for Revolver with, you know, the sped up vocals and so on and so forth. Yeah, could be. But I liked Coming Up and I liked Waterfalls. And I think temporary secretary is an odd choice for the radio. That turned out to be just so far ahead of its time. When he bought it back live, all the clubs were saying, what's this? Where did that come from? But Yoko Ono was herself becoming a hit maker on the dance charts at that time. We can't forget that. We have the dance remixes and that sort of playing around to thank 
for the existence of firemen. That's what youth does. Yeah. So format-wise, the 12-inch vinyl single gave way to the four-song CD single, which lasted for a good long while. And a lot of us are still mad at Paul. He would release four versions of the single with three different B-sides. So you you would have to collect all four versions and you get 12 different B-sides. Right. That's where the game began. The thing which is still going on to this day. Oh, absolutely. Although, I mean, he was nice enough to usually collect all of his B-sides and release them in Germany. So instead of having to go and buy eight or nine different copies of two different singles, you could just put down $25 at the record show and buy the German collection, the German three CD collection, which had everything on it. (laughs) Right. But, you know, that's kind of why I say... For all the complaining we do about how they have a spend these days, it's still better than it was in the 90s. You had the end of the 12-inch singles, and you had the CD singles coming into vogue. So as a collector, you're paying a whole lot more for mostly the same stuff. You're right. The Broad Street single, No More Lonely Nights, that should have done much better than it did. It went with a eclectic movie. Had the movie been better, the song would have been better, I think. Well, but it still did better than Spies Like Us, and... There's another one. Do you like Spies Like Us? It's clearly a single. It's kind of filler for me. As much as Paul McCartney does filler. I mean, he's talented and he'll turn. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and, and he, you know, anything he does is probably going to have some worth. Well, except maybe freedom. <laughs> right. We'll go there again. <laughs> that brings us to the 90s through the present day. I guess it was right around chaos and creation that he kind of stopped being interested in physical singles in any format. Things were changing, though, you know. Oh, certainly the market was changing. And at this period of time, it was before the streamers had started, but we were well into, at that point, it was LimeWire, but it it would quickly become torrents and download services that we have these days. Right. It has changed, which is why Taylor Swift can have all 10 songs in the top 10, because the delivery systems are different. One of the singles that I will bring up, which was a vinyl single and so we're finally getting it back is the jenny wren single which had summer 59 on the b-side which was not anywhere right it was never released on cd it was never released digitally in the summer of 59 dandelion shine up to the pavement Little bushes in the bushes, waspy pinches, sixteen inches round the waist, and it's all in the name of good taste. In the summer of '59, all we've had all these years is just a needle drop, and so we're actually finally going to get a digital release of that song. There you go. That's worth the seven hundred dollar price. <laughs> the digital, you just have to go and. Play it as long as you have your subscription. Right. It's worth my 100 bucks for the year for the subscription to get that one song. In addition, I get everything else, and I get the Atmos versions of the Beatles albums, which, well, they're not providing on physical media anymore. I thought at this point, first decade of the 2000s, he had some good songs. I liked Dance Tonight and Ever Present Past. I liked a, a whole lot. So he could still turn out a good single. He really still can turn out a good single. I like the stuff that was off of McCarty 3. Yeah. I mean, the Egypt Station stuff, you know, Fuh You was, okay, it was okay. 
twee. <laughs> yeah, but there were some good songs on that album. Oh, absolutely. I like the other single better. I don't know. Having a single in a minor key is kind of interesting. That come on to me. So, you know, we're to the point where, what is the single? It's It was marketed as a double A side, and it was, come on to me, and I don't know. Double A side when there was no physical single to accompany. Right, right. there is no double side. It's just two songs. Yeah, exactly. They both found their way out. I'm glad he's collating this box. 80 singles at his 80th birthday, great. It's an excuse. It's a little bit strange that... He's released more than 80 singles, and so not all of his U.S. and U.K. singles are represented off the ground, hint, hint, hint. But, okay, it's product. It's his product, and it gets rid of his crate envy. (laughs) Right, and that's what we're really talking about here. Although he didn't build little gnomes, he could have given us the figure from Wing's Greatest. Hey. He could have put a replica of that in this box. Yeah, he could have. Or even better... If he would have put in a replica of the black thing that's on the Led Zeppelin Presence album. (laughs) All right. So uh, let's close out this show. We had a little bit more we wanted to talk about Revolver and the Revolver box. Uh, I'll lead off. I spent much of the last week listening intently to the Atmos mix. I have decided the Atmos mix is better than the stereo mix. A lot of the shortcomings that we've talked about Things like, you remember when we were talking to Kit and she was saying the drums didn't sound exactly right. I think some of those frequencies got mixed out in the stereo and they're sort of in the space above you in the Atmos mix. You know, a lot of the little things we complained about come off a lot better in the Atmos mix. And it's nice to get a clear placement rather than, you know, in the stereo mix, they kind of sort of force it to be a little bit like, oh, well, it's a little bit in front of you or a little bit behind you by playing with the volume. But for real, it works out. So that's my thought. The mix is very good. It's the best of the Atmos mixes that Giles has done so far. Again, that's probably in part due to the demix technology to Mal. And he knows what he's doing. Well, he's done enough. I mean... (laughs) It's like anything. He's every time he does it, he's, he's a little better based on his experience. You know, I can't I can't hear it, those mixes because of my hearing playing Beatle records for so long. <laughs> I'm kind of deaf in one ear, so I can only hear music on headphones. You do speakers, and then everything, all the balance goes weird. So that's why I'm not weighing in on this, and I'll take your word for it. It's good. It's a little bit easier to talk about a stereo mix where you can say it's right or left, but having to describe locations in space is a little bit difficult. Really, all you can say is it's a good mix, or they screwed it up completely. The drums are all behind you, which is not the case here. Again, the here, there, and everywhere, John and Paul literally on either side of you, fully surrounding you, That it's pretty amazing we went in and dug through the book again and found some things so we got a little correction from last week was indeed a recording from the emi tape library right i had recalled from jeff emmerich's book that he actually refuted the story that George Barton told about cutting the tape up, turning it around, putting it in a bottle of Coke sort of thing. And he said that actually happened first on Yellow Submarine. However, the piece of music doesn't seem manipulated that much. 
I mean, it doesn't sound like it was cut up and turned around and, you know. That's not what it says in the book. That's my point, is that Emmerich says that, but he, he does remember that it was a piece of tape that they manipulated to some degree. But what it is, is, is a pre-recorded piece of music that was slowed down in large part to make it fit the key that Yellow Submarine is. Well, and that explains why that version on there is five or six percent sped up. The version we get on the box, that has to be the one that they dropped this into. Right. It was playing back at that speed because they had already prepared the tape so they could drop it into it and then slow the whole thing down. That could be. What's written in the book is a phrase from uh, Le, Le Rev Passé from the EMI Abbey Road Sound Effects Tape Volume 46 performed in B-flat, was slowed down so that its pitch matched the key in, in Yellow Submarine. After some slight editing for timing reasons, the phrase slotted neatly into the gap that was left to be filled later. Yeah, that was always another part that had triggered my interest, because when you listen to the phrase, it kind of fades out before the chorus comes in. We all live in our Yellow Submarine. So, you know, it's not like you had an arranged, and this is how it ends. And then the other thing the book mentions is we were still trying to figure out the chronology of She Said, She Said, and how it worked out. Paul and Ringo were on a single track. They were on track one. And so that is likely they just lifted over that same track through the rehearsals through to the finished version. Right. The book does not clearly say that's Paul playing on the final version, but it implies that it's that track which you know made its way through that says that they overdub guitars and that John overdubbed some organ to double up and deepen some of the bass parts, but that's all it says. That's cool that he played the, the organ on top of the bass. It says it's that low. It's probably uh, organ pedals, but that's uh, I like that. Yeah, that's pretty cool, definitely. So, all right, uh, did, did you have anything else you wanted to say about the book? Uh, you know. Yes, I did. In the book, there is a listing of the songs that were going on on Revolver. And it actually, there's two titles that are altered. So on side two, it lists the song as I Want to Love You. Hmm. And that could just be a word error. But it also, as the last song, says Tomorrow Never Knows. Knows is scratched out. And then ends is written in hmm well i mean of course tomorrow never knows had gone through so many different titles it was the void and it was mark one and right i just thought it was interesting it was because it's not the other way around tomorrow never ends no that's not it how about tomorrow never knows it had gone one way and then it had gone back apparently Right. That's the reason for the book. One thing we didn't mention, which everybody likes, is if you look on the white cover, there's actually white on white of the hair from the cover of Revolver. So some of Klaus's original drawing is actually there in white on white. The pictures are great, and even though we didn't go back and read carefully enough before the show, I mean, we only have so much time in the week, but I'm glad that we have it, and it's good to see just how well-documented everything is in here. Yeah. So if we have the questions, we can find them while we're waiting for Lewison. <laughs> right. And Lewison may be listening to the show going, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> this is true. He probably does not read the books. 
<laughs> they don't want me to write them. I'm not going to read them. <laughs> right. All right. Very good. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Uh, although I guess you just passed Thanksgiving. You know, this is, this is coming out the Sunday after Thanksgiving for you guys. But Right. I hope you didn't eat too much and have jogged. <laughs> all right so we will return next week with a new show no more revolver at least for now we'll, we'll get back to get back right we got more to get back stuff we can talk about we, we said we we're gonna get back to it yeah we we're gonna talk about the book actually <laughs> all right talk to y'all next week bye subscribe to when they was fab on itunes podbean stitcher or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. is individually numbered. We're using technology to print each box. We've got screen printing, traditional, goes back centuries. So we're using century-old printing methods with current-day technology. The box is then sanded, cleaned out. Then we put it onto the bench where we fit the foam inside out, put the lid on, put the straps round, put it in the strato cells, in the carton, and then on the lorry. Coming up! I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.